You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Hey, guys. Good day, sir. Summertime. Hey. Yeah. Hot out there. I love watching Evan's face as he tries to think of casual conversations <laughs> to have. <laughs> that makes deep, it seem like I can't engage in casual conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Good weather, no? <laughs> uh, Evan, who'd you talk to this week? This week I talked to Brendan Kerner who is the author of The Skies Belong to Us, uh, which is just recently out and getting fantastic reviews, as it should, because it's a really great story. He also wrote Now the Hell Will Start, which is a book that I really love. And he writes for Wired and other magazines, and he's uh, really fun to talk to. Yeah, just so we're clear, the book is about skyjacking. Hey, Evan, do you remember when we were at um, South by Southwest together and we went to a conference on newsjacking? Newsjacking? <laughs> Did I go to that? I think you were there. It doesn't sound like something I would attend. I think, I'm pretty sure you were there because I've I've noticed you might not re- you might been not re- newsjacking a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you might not remember it because you got newsjacked. I newsjack naturally. <laughs> newsjacking is when you try to get yourself included in a story about something else. Um, if you do want to do some newsjacking towards your friends, you might need to start a newsletter. And if you're starting a newsletter, you might want to check out our sponsor, Tiny Letter the good people at MailChimp. It's a simple, powerful way to send an email newsletter. But I think we may have another sponsor. We do. If you want to uh, move beyond newsjacking and start <laughs> writing actual good books like Brendan, uh, you should apply to the Literary Reportage Concentration at the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. That's at NYU. Here's Evan and Brendan Kerner. Oh, thank you. Thanks Brent for having me. Kerner. Brendan I. Kerner. What, yes. <laughs> what's the I? It's for Ian. Oh. I believe it or not, my dad was a big James Bond fan. Oh, really? Yeah, so it's after Ian Fleming. <laughs> <laughs> He's, he loves the, uh, not the books so much, but the movies. Mm-hmm. He's really in a doctor now, so I grew up kind of <laughs> watching early Bond flicks and knowing that my middle name was from that. That's kind of amazing. Yeah, if you're going to be named after some, you know, someone that... British spy novels isn't a bad one. <laughs> so I was going to ask, are you at the book publicity point where you're like those actors that are in front of that backdrop where they're like, what's it like working with Tom Cruise? Yeah, I mean, obviously a, a lot of the way into interviews are through the same questions, like how do you find the story and um, a lot of things of that nature. So it, it does get a little harder to work up the enthusiasm to... <laughs> To tell the story, though, I'm happy to do it again and again. <laughs> Anything to you know, get people to read what I worked on. So, um, yeah, well, I don't, it's hard for me to find a way around all of the questions. I mean, some of which I know the answer to. <laughs> right. Um, I actually want to start, well, I, we got to do a capsule of the book first. Sure. It, it won't make sense to people if we don't talk about what the book is. Um, so, Skies Belong to Us. Um Maybe give your give your standard. Uh, sure, like it's the brief. story of uh, two star-crossed young lovers in the early '70s who pulled off the longest-distance skyjacking in American history, um, set against the backdrop of this huge hijacking epidemic uh, in America um, in the late '60s and early '70s when 
planes being hijacked was just kind of a, a run-of-the-mill, everyday sort of thing that people had to cope with. So it's, it's part, you know, narrative yarn and, and part history of this just bonkers time in America. Yeah, so I, I sat down with you, like, it must have been a year and a half ago, mm -hmm. I want to say, um, when you were working on it, and you had a laptop. We were at a bar. You had a laptop with a basically a PowerPoint presentation yeah. of photos. Mm -hmm. um, first, describe what that was. Um, yeah, and then I have some questions about it. Sure. So that's the way I outlined the the book. You know, instead of sitting down and doing like Roman numeral one, letter A, which is kind of my old strategy, um, I've started storyboarding everything that I do, where the outline is just a series of images, and sometimes they can be traditional photos. Um, sometimes they'll just be uh, snippets of text um, that stand in for a plot point. Um, there's a lot of things you can do, but there's no real written out outline. So that, what I did is basically that what you saw is about 200 images that were sequenced exactly uh, the way the book goes. So interspersing their story with this larger narrative of the rise and fall of hijacking in America. And did you find that you, you sort of thought better visually uh, than you had the way you'd worked in the past? Yeah, so it really all goes back to when I was writing the screenplay for my first book, Now the Hell Will Start, which is this World War II story um, about this uh, black GI from, from Washington, D.C., who killed a commanding officer in Burma and went native in, in the hills there in the jungle. And so Spike Lee optioned the book and, and hired me to write the screenplay. And you know, I remember he asked me to come in and basically tell him what I was going to what I was going to do for the screenplay. And it was this real moment of, what am I going to do? What does this guy expect from me? Um, you know, kind of nerve-wracking. And, and I just thought that directors, you know, think visually. They don't think so much in terms of words on the page. They think of images. And so I had this idea that, you know, people storyboard through, through art, you know, cartoonish kind of drawings. And I can't do that. I can't draw. But I can certainly assemble a whole bunch of JPEGs <laughs> and, you know, put them in the sequence of how I think the, the screenplay should unfold. And, you know, doing that for him the first time, sitting down with him and doing that, I really realized that it was an effective way not just to communicate a uh, story to a director, but for my own edification and understanding of the story. It was really helpful to me. Um, initially, when I started thinking about doing that for this book, you know, one of the first things I did is I literally put all these documents and photos, hard copies, on my floor uh -huh. and take a video camera and just slowly walk by all of them. <laughs> really? I just sequenced like <laughs> FBI documents on my floor, literally, and just kind of went by with a video camera. And that was kind of cumbersome. So <laughs> I realized that it was probably better just to use JPEGs and scans and kind of just do them, you know, on my iPad, um, just an iPhoto and later using Keynote so I could incorporate video as well. Yeah. And there's something, and some of them were like, like things you'd snatch from the internet and some things yeah. were from research and it's, it's you can I guess it, no one's going to see it except right you, yeah so. it's it's completely for you know private consumption yeah. so you know if I run into a thing where I don't have an image for this there's always the handle handy you know google image search or I, you can always find a stand-in for something um the easiest thing to do is find a document and just do a screenshot of the relevant text and stick it in there yeah um and there's something more I think you know visceral about instead of me typing something out in Word, having like a snippet of text that's from an actual primary source document, yeah. doing that lifting in the, in the storyboard. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, I didn't even connect these two things, but now I'm remembering that when, for Piano Demon, for the Teddy Weatherford thing that we did, yeah. you, we sat in the park, in Bryant Park in New York, and you pulled out your laptop, yep. and your pitch was basically like, it was a slideshow. The yeah. pitch was a slideshow. Yeah, exactly. I totally forgot about that. Mm -hmm. And... There's something about seeing those images. I mean, I guess it, it's sort of hard to encourage people like you should pitch your magazine out <laughs> here with like a slideshow because most most people are going to be like, right. uh, why don't you send me a one page pitch? Right. <laughs> but uh, there was something sort of amazing, especially for something historical like that to be able to visualize it. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the highest compliments I think you can give to narrative is that it's cinematic. It's, it's if someone calls your story cinematic, it's such high praise because it's, mean, it's unfolding through them in a way that it just feels natural and the flow of it is just hits them on a gut instinctual level. So I think a, 
using visual visuals is a great way. And that's kind of why I first saw the, the promise and the atavis, because I innately understood from my experience writing the screenplay version of the first book, you know, how much images and sound and, and all those additional things to text can enrich the experience and make it flow and, and unfold in a much more powerful way for the reader. Now, I know you've told the story of a few times now at least of how you everyone wants to know how did you find sure. these hijackers how did you find yeah. out about it but I want I want you to tell it anyway because yeah. it is I mean it's in some ways it's classic mm -hmm. in and then in some ways it's it's actually kind of like I think it exemplifies something so actually yeah sure so you know I was reading is October 2009 and I was reading the New York Times Metro section and um, there was a story about this man named Luis Armando Peña Soltron and he had been a Puerto Rican nationalist, actually living in the Bronx in the late 60s. He had a wife and daughter. And uh, he and two of his comrades decided to hijack a plane from uh, New York to Cuba. And he ended up spending the next 41 years living in Cuba. Um, and then all of a sudden in 2009, he decided to come back because he missed his wife and daughter that he left behind. Um, what it, it, it took a long time for him to really build up that. I mean, yeah. I guess he knew what was going to happen to him when he got back. Well, that's the thing. So it got to the point where he said that I, I'd rather be inside an American prison cell than spend one more day living here in, in Cuba. <laughs> um, he was 66 years old at this time, and the story was about him being arrested the second he stepped off the plane at JFK. And it appealed to me. It struck a chord in me, I guess, for a few reasons. I think one is I have this real fascination with stories about fugitives and exiles. So I was interested about this man who kind of completely reinvented himself, gone on the run, and kind of had to adapt to this new environment in Cuba and become a totally different person, but on some level had never relinquished this desire to, to be part of his former life. And I think, too, just, you know, seeing a story about hijackings, you know, hijacking to us now is the most taboo crime there can be because yeah. the associations with 9-11... And I was always vaguely familiar with the fact that, like, planes used to be hijacked to Cuba. I heard stuff. There's a Monty Python sketch that kind of riffs on it. <laughs> oh, really? But um, there's definitely, I mean, we're, we're about the same age. Like, when we were kids, there were hijackings that were not as yeah. serious. I mean, they were serious. They, and they were, were a news, few. But they weren't, they weren't as, you know, devastating. There were definitely a few kind of, like, you know, once or twice a year in, like, the late 70s, early 80s, there'd be some kind of mentally ill person who did something. But... I was really interested, like, wow, this guy went to Cuba and got away with it for 41 years. I, I wonder what it was going on with hijackings back then. How frequent were they? And are there other stories of people like him who spent many years on the run after doing this? Um, and so I just, you know, did the, the lazy Google search, the Google <laughs> News search thing, and I was just completely overwhelmed by the sheer number of stories. Yeah. There were just so many. I mean, I, I couldn't even find this guy's story because there were, like, literally you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of them from this time period. And I was going through them, and, and, you know, most of the hijackers were male, first of all. And, you know, they had pretty obvious motives um, for doing this, um, often political in nature um, or personal in nature or mental illness, of course. And I came across this one name of this, this woman, this young 20-year-old woman, um, Catherine Marie Kirko. And... First of all, because she was a woman, she stuck out from the pack. And second of all, you know, she was a 20-year-old from a small town in Oregon who had no obvious reason for doing this, for yeah. hijacking a plane. Um, and, you know, once you do that, you can't come home. So <laughs> turning your back on everything that you've ever known, your family, your friends, your whole life to do this. Um, I was just really intrigued by that. And I found out that she'd done this with her. Uh, she was a, a white girl from Coos Bay, Oregon. She danced with her black Vietnam veteran boyfriend, Roger Holder. And, you know, obviously I'm a sucker for a, a star-crossed romance, <laughs> as most people are. So that further intrigued me. And what really sealed the deal for me in terms of, like, I can't not tell this story, I think, was the fact, finding out that um, Roger Holder's family had briefly lived in Coos Bay when he was a, a small child. Yeah, um, that's the craziest detail. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it was amazing to me. I, I found um, an op-ed from, a, a, from um, a radio station, a radio station manager there had written about this in the wake saying, well, you know, this shouldn't surprise any of us because his family was really badly treated here. They were run out of town by these racists who were in the town. 
Um, and actually, eventually, when I went to Coos Bay and I dug up, you know, more more research about that, um, it was just such a coincidence. And finding out later on in the story that that coincidence is what convinced Roger Holder that well, the fact I bumped into this girl from Coos Bay again must mean we're meant to do something phenomenal together. <laughs> <laughs> Change the world. Change the world. Exactly. He really, yeah. he really did on some level, you know, feel like there was some weight of history on him to act and do something. So amazing. I mean, the reason I said it was, it's like a classic way of finding a story is sort of like, well, it's a little newspaper mm-hmm. squib. And then, wow, maybe there's a bigger story here. But it wasn't that story. Right. And then it also seems like it could have derailed when you you sort of like, wow, look at all these hijacks, which is incredible. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember either when you showed me that slideshow or it's the same experience when you read the book and you're kind of like, wait, you're fucking kidding me. Like, yeah. there's another, this guy and then this yeah. guy. It's just like people forgot. I mean, or mm-hmm. the, you know, they just, you don't hear about it anymore. But then that's not really a story either. Like you, that book is a different book, a book that's just about right. how many skyjackings there were. And then there's this story. Well, I think it's the way that I visualize the whole structure of the book in my mind was uh, kind of like the, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this right, the caduceus, which is that um, the two serpents who coil around each other, it's their traditional symbol of medicine. Oh, um, oh yeah. So basically, I, mean, I never these, knew it was called that. It's, I it's, not claim to I, I, yeah, I'm not going to claim before. my pronunciation is dead on, <laughs> but hopefully uh, people will know what I'm talking about. It's, the, it's these two serpents that kind of twist around each other. And eventually at the very top, their, fa- their faces are facing each other. And so I thought about, you know, one strand, one of these serpents was the Roger Holder, Kathy Kirko narrative. The other serpent was this history, this rise and fall of uh, hijacking in America, an epidemic, I think is really the best way to, to characterize it. And so I saw them where kind of like they're independent you know, of each other for a while. And they're kind of like there's some alternation in the structure of the book. And then about midway through, they kind of just meld together completely until they're facing each other. Um, So that's really the, when I thought about the best way to characterize how you take two kind of separate narratives, um, that was the best, the best analogy I could come up with. Well, it really works. I mean, it's a, it's a tricky thing to pull off, I think. Yeah. Because you're, you're dealing in, in little vignettes and then you're dealing with this, this very, you know, you're going deep into this narrative and you have to pull out of one to to go into the other one. Yes, and I think that, you know, I, I attempted something somewhat similar in my first book um, and just because I didn't have the experience or, or the skill really to do it, um, it didn't really, wor- didn't really work quite as I had hoped. Um, I think there were moments in the first book where because of my lack of experience with, with book structure, I deviated from one of the narratives for too long. Um, you know, you don't want people to get tugged away. Mm-hmm. And so cause I'm, I go with one of my serpents for a little bit too long while neglecting the other one. Um, so I, you know, I learned a lot from kind of the errors and structure that I made on that first book and trying to make this one much, much tighter. But you also, you kind of, I did notice in a couple of places, uh, you drop in, you know, you're in the sort of uh, one, going from one skyjacker to another, and mm-hmm. then there's sort of like a like Kirko, like there's mm-hmm. maybe a little bit of reference back just to kind of yeah. orient you. Yeah, they were there. That's definitely like, and I'd say like, so it's an 18 chapter book around chapter like six or so. I start to do that mm-hmm. like a good bit and kind of like start to bring those serpents together. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, there's a before that, it's kind of never the twain shall meet. Um, I think the first five chapters are pretty much like that, where one chapter is dedicated to their particular narrative and the next to the larger history and it's in that sixth chapter where I start to make those transitions and I start to like indicate how they fit into the larger picture yeah of that madness I like in the early ones it it feels like you're there's a little bit of trust with the reader you're saying mm-hmm. you're you're basically you're not saying why these right. things are going to come together it's sort of like oh, they've seen the cover like maybe they yeah they, they have to trust that eventually this is all going to Coalesce. Yes, I mean that's the I think the the trick for any any book is like you want you know uh, narrative history you need people to get through the background. Mm-hmm. You know it's really important. I think when I did my second and third drafts of the book, you really need to get through that stuff quickly, right? Because you you'll lose readers um, if you're dwelling and they don't see the actual action taking place. You, they're not getting to the meat of the narrative, um, and that was really challenging. There was a lot of streamlining that went on. Um, in some of the early chapters on rewrite, where I had to get rid of some some digressions, which were fascinating, but 
too much footnote material and, mm-hmm. and detracted from the, the pacing and flow of the main narrative. Mm-hmm. And I, I, there's some aspects I don't want to talk about that we should identify <clears throat> as potential spoilers. So people okay. should read the book. Absolutely, they, they should, yes. <laughs> they listen to this, this part of it in particular. But, you know, I know that in the reporting, I mean, I remember talking to you about mm-hmm. when you hold Holder. Is it Holder? Holder, yeah. yeah. Like you found him. Yeah. And then what happened after that? Like how do you – you've got this guy who's committed this crime a long mm-hmm. time ago, yeah. and now you're trying to convince him, okay, I want you to tell me everything that happened. Right. What was your – how did you sort of like move from that to like sitting across from him? Um, so what happened is that, you know, it was uh, difficult to locate him. You know, he uh, – I called a lot of phone numbers that were not him, that I thought maybe were him or not him. You know, he was kind of a ghost in public records. Um, it was really difficult to locate. Finally, what happened is there was a, um, a, f- a document I obtained through FOIA. I want to say it was an FBI document. Um, but that someone had failed to redact his Social Security number. And so that, al- yeah, that, al- that allowed for looking up in voter registration records in San Diego. My assumption all along was that he would be in San Diego, which is where his family it's where he was living prior to the hijacking, and he had roots there. His father was in the Navy, um, so I knew that that was probably the most likely place for him to be. Um, and it turned out that that, that turned up an address, um, not a phone number, but an address. And so what I did is I wrote a letter. Um, I didn't want to fly out there and just doorstop him mm-hmm. without giving him a heads up, knowing about his history. I didn't know how he'd <laughs> react to... Yeah, I mean, it's not a spoiler <laughs> to say, like... He was in Vietnam and he has some PTSD potentially. He's got some, some you know, he's got some psychological issues um, and, and obviously paranoia, a pretty thick paranoia. Um, so I, I felt that the st- strategy should not be to just show up at his door. And so I wrote him a letter and I remember I was actually walking it to the post office to mail it to him. And I stopped. I was a block away from the post office. And I said, you know what I should do is I should also send him a, a copy of my first book. So I walked back home, you know, took out the letter, put it in a, in a padded mailer with a paperback of my first book and sent it off. And actually about 10 days or two weeks later, I got a phone call in 619 area code on the caller ID. I was like, this has to be him. And it was. And, um, you know, I talked to him for a little bit. And I think I remember the way that he introduced himself on the phone was he's like, you know, this is Roger Holder. I did the hijacking for the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. Um, was was the way he introduced himself, um, and it turns out that he was living with this older woman who was his girlfriend of many years, and uh, she read the book actually, and she was really impressed with the first book, and um, recommended to him that you know that he that he could uh, trust me to sit down with him. And fortunately for me, he'd actually been working on his memoirs for many years, um, which turned out to be kind of these fragmentary notes more than actual. G- Bonafide memoirs, but he obviously had a real interest in having his story uh, remembered for history. I mean, did he, he, sorry, did he have um, did he have resistance to? I mean, was he thinking, "I don't want you to tell my story because I'm going to tell my story"? I think there was some sense in him that he wanted his memoirs to be published, and you know, I was kind of trying to explain to him that, like, you know, especially having seen his memoirs and they're not written through you know, memoirs that, you know, if, if I, if you'll talk to me, if I'll tell your story, then that's a, a good way to get your story out. And maybe people will be interested in your primary source material um, as well. Um, you know, I would say that it was really key for me to have his girlfriend vouch for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so he invited me over. I mean, it didn't take that long, to be honest. There was a couple conversations on the phone. And at that point, he was inviting me out to come out to San Diego. Um, you know, I did that, and I remember going there that first day, and I talk about this scene in the book, but I'll never forget it. You know, really, I've been working on this already for about over two years at this point. Um, you know, I go there, and I park my car, and I walk up, and he has this kind of modest stucco apartment in a kind of not-that-great neighborhood in San Diego, and I ring the buzzer on his gate. And then I realize the gate's open, and I kind of just nudge it ajar. And right as I'm doing that, I see him coming towards me. And he's kind of dressed kind of cool. <laughs> he's got, like, this uh, 
purple shirt, like untucked, kind of unbuttoned halfway down his chest, the gold chain and tight, you know, jeans and these really cool cowboy boots. Um, and he comes up and I'm really nervous. I mean, you can't help not being a little nervous in that situation. I'm like, I'm really sorry. I, you know, I, I, I just, your gate was open and I, I opened it and he looked at it. And for a second, he looked at the latch and he said to me, well, you always do remind me of a burglar. <laughs> and he's kind of beckoned me inside. And, and <laughs> I guess there's just this great ice-breaking moment of like, this guy actually has a sense of humor. Yeah. And it's a, little, it's a little off-center, but like, you know, I, I can have a report with this guy. As yeah. the pilots on the hijacked plane, you know, one of, sent, one of them said to me is like, you talk to him and we got a report going pretty quickly. He's actually very charismatic and... And genuine and friendly. Yeah, he's a cool. He's a cool guy. He was a cool guy. Yeah, he's <laughs> he a cool guy. Did hijack a plane? Yeah, across the world. Yes, but I, in in doing that, you know, in spending time with him, obviously one of the defining things of his character was his ability to attract women and get women to take care of him. Um, and I could see that aspect of his personality and how he used his charm and charisma to make that happen for him for so many years. Mm. And then. Now you have the situation, we've talked about this a little bit because I'm so curious about it, and this is a real spoiler, so people should seriously read the book, but <laughs> the, the, there's the other character in the book yep. is not findable. Yes, so without giving too much away, we have the, the woman in it, Kathy Kirko, who was the first character who fascinated me. You know, last seen getting a fake passport in Switzerland in 1978. <laughs> You know, Roger Holder you know, talked very, very movingly about their, their last meeting in, in Paris, um, that she gave him this Omega watch and was like, you know, I'll, I'll see you later. We'll talk about this later. And he never saw her again. And I, I believe genuinely has no idea where she is. I think she decided that she wanted to move beyond, you know, being with this somewhat troubled Vietnam veteran who was really having a difficult time. Um, you know, she was a very beautiful and, and charismatic in her own way in Paris and was living a good life. And I think someone arranged for her to disappear, to get a new identity. And yeah, her whereabouts are a mystery. You know, she's on the Interpol site. There's a red notice that went up, with, went up for her when I was in the course of uh, writing the book. Wow. Um, and th that is challenging, of course, as a reporter, knowing that you're not going to be able to interview this person who's so vital and, and to me is the heart and soul of the book in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, I didn't get her family to cooperate with me. Um, had a very, you know, um, upsetting, you know, run-in with her mother, um, who was really upset that I was doing this. Um, understandably so, you know, I, I have a lot of s sympathy for her. Um, as, as a father myself, uh, if one of my kids hijacked a plane um, and I never saw him or her again, I mean, that, that would be pretty devastating. Um, so, you know, I, I definitely respect her decision not to want to share that with me, but it created a big reporting challenge um, is how do I flesh this person out as a character when I only have other people talking about her? Mm -hmm. And then you had uh, fact checking issues, too, just because with him, he can, you know, he can recreate dialogue even yeah. or he's got his memoirs and that. And then how do you kind of like how did you deal with the other side of that? It was tough. Um you know, I had to make some decisions, like when do I go single source? You know, things that maybe I wouldn't be allowed to do in a magazine article so much. Mm -hmm. um, there were some things where I would try to flesh out f some details, but I, maybe I couldn't get someone, another pair of eyes that had actually been there. Um, fortunately for me, actually I was able to find a, a lot of second sources for things I thought I never would. Um, for example, you know, I have this scene very early on where it's about the meeting between the two of them. And they mm -hmm. meet where he's actually going to, Roger Holder is going to find a friend of Kathy Kirko's to ask her out for a date or whatever. And he knocks on the door and she comes up. Kathy Kirko answers the door and there's this instant attraction. They end up smoking a joint, the three of them, these, these two women and Roger Holder. And, you know, there were three people in that room and I interviewed two of them. And the other one is, is MIA since 1978. <laughs> so... Um, whenever I could, I, you know, I really tried to exhaust all efforts to, to find second sources. There are a few things that, that Roger told me about Kathy that were pretty explosive mm -hmm. um, that I tried to get second sources on and I couldn't. Um, and so they're not in the book. Hmm. Um, and that was, it was, it was tough because I feel like maybe some other people would make a different decision. Um, obviously, she's not here to defend herself. And a lot of what he, a lot of what he, he told me checked out. Yeah. 
you know, it, it was really, there was this one thing he told me, and he went on about this quite a bit, is that I used to live in a 32-room chateau in, in northern France, and I hung out with Joan Baez there. And I was like, That's, that can't be true. This has to be just some figment of his imagination. A little while later, um, I got an FBI document that had the name of this count in question. Um, and I actually tracked down that count, um, who now runs the chateau as kind of a, a high-class inn. Um, and I called him up, you know, and, and I was like, he was like, yeah, of course, Roger. I mean, we loved Roger. He stayed here for a while, and Joan Baez was a guest. And, <laughs> and, he, and he asked me, like, whatever happened to Roger? One day he just burned his memoirs and walked away, and I never saw him or heard from him again. Wow. <laughs> so it was a mystery to him, you know, this count, uh, Denise de Kergolet, what had happened to Roger Holder as well. So, you know, in doing this research, I actually answered some questions for a source, you know, about <laughs> about this figure from his past. As he called him, Roger was a ghost, you know, it's a ghost in his life. Wow. Had he, uh, do you know if he'd ever been contacted by any reporters over the years? Had anyone found him? Yeah, I asked him that and he said no, huh. uh, which was a little hard for me to believe. But... um you know, I asked him either he didn't have a memory of it or no one had followed up enough. Um, but certainly the last newspaper thing I'd seen about him was from 1991. And then he'd completely disappeared. Um, in 1991, he was caught up in the sting sting operation. He was trying to buy some explosives, um, ostensibly to do another hijacking. And uh, that was the last time that, that his name appeared in, in the media. And I, mm. I searched high and low through microfilm and everything I could and no other mention of him. Mm. Is there a point at which, because you got really far before you found him. Yes, I Was did. there a point at which there was sort of no turning back whether you found him or not? Yeah, I think I think by the time I did, you know, my, my you know, there was a chance he was dead. Like there was a, a good chance he was dead. Um, so my thinking there was like, well, I'll just have to track down his family and get as much as I can from them. But, you know, I, I found a brother who was dead and... and um, it was difficult, you know. It it was it was hard to find family members. Parents were deceased. Um, it was very difficult, and so I th- I just had to have faith that something would would come through. I, I mean, that's you know, if I had never found anybody, I would have had to still go through with the book, <laughs> but it, it would have been a much poor, a much different book, and a much poorer book. And the other thing I wanted to ask you about in relation to the the reporting on that was just, you know. You get a certain amount of a book advance mm-hmm. that you're working with, you're trying to live off of, and you're still doing your other writing. Yeah. And then you have to decide at what level you're going to report this. And this story touches on it goes to Africa, it goes yeah. to France, you've got, you're going to San Diego. How did you make decisions about what was worth doing and what you could afford to do and what you had time to do? Yeah, it was um, an evolving process as I went on, as the kind of money dwindled. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, at first I was like, you know, wherever you are, I'll hop on a plane or a train and come to you. I'll go to Seattle. I'll go to Washington, D.C. I'll go anywhere. I'll go to Florida. Um, and then kind of I looked at my finances and it was like, well, I had to be more selective about this. Um, you know, it would have been great if I had like unlimited money and I could duck away from my family for three or four or five months. Just go sit in France and just uh, try to track that story down more. There's this couple who I really wanted to, who kind of like I talked to a little bit, they kind of clammed up after a while mm-hmm. and I kind of hit a brick wall with them. And I had this idea, I was like, well, I'm just gonna go to France and I'm just gonna sit on them for a while and just kind of doorstop them and see what happens. But, um, you know, the risk to reward based on how much money I had in the had in the bank, you know, there were other interviews that had to get done and I, you know, I had to make a choice. Do I go to a, a, a small village in France and, and kind of take the gamble? These people will talk to me if I show up, or do I do two or three interviews in the states that might that I know I can get and are going to be really viable to the book? So you have to make choices based on resources, um, which is difficult. You know, we all want to we all want to do the utmost, um, but there are realities intrude on our journalistic fantasies. Yeah, and it, is your What's your current hunch on whether or not she will appear or, I mean, she's got to read this book. Yeah. Someone is, I mean, then again, someone may not even tell her about the book because depending on if she's where she is, they don't know who she is, but. Yeah. Well, it's being published in France. Okay. So my my hope in that is that someone will come forward with information Mm -hmm. um, about her. You know, my. There's two basic fates, and I, I kind of discuss it a little bit in the book, but 
you know, I think one potential fate is that, you know, she had kind of a fast lifestyle and it caught up with her at a young age. Um, or maybe just became ill, just, uh, you know, unlucky. Or two, that she actually did manage to melt into French society and reinvent herself as uh, someone with a, a backstory, you know? Like, oh, I, you know, I came here as a student or my father was transferred here by his company and something her husband was complicit in. Maybe their kids don't know. Um, that's certainly the, the ending that I would like to imagine. Now, I'm also very interested in this reinvention idea. Mm-hmm. I've, I'm borderline obsessed with it myself. <laughs> but... Why, why is that? Why are you so interested in it? Where does it come from? I think that I'm really interested in, in being like a deeply American writer. I'm really fascinated by America, and I I'm proudly want to be an American writer. Um, I want American themes to be in my work. And so I think reinvention in me is at the very heart of America, and I think that the promise of it is so amazing, but also the way that we kind of betray that promise in so many ways. I think that's one of the reasons that race is often at the core of pretty much every great American story, right? Because that's really um, one of the great betrayals of this promise of, well, anyone can reinvent themselves, but maybe not if I can see you look different than me. (laughs) Um, So -hmm. I think that's a a really, you know, important thing to discuss in, in any great American narrative um, race, ethnicity, and the things that complicate that mission to reinvent oneself. And I think, too, it's, you know, I think it goes back to a lot of the way that I grew up reading. Um, you know, I was, an, I was an only child, and I was, I was really interested in, in books, and I was always interested in adventure tales. Um, and a lot of them have to do with people being on the run or trying to stay one step ahead of somebody and kind of having to live by their wits mm-hmm. alone and having all these narrow escapes. And to me, that was just always fascinating because it, it, it provided this promise that, like, you know, you can always duck away and kind of, like, you know, grab your getaway bag and the money you've saved up and just completely become somebody else. And the fact that people do that routinely and just invent these whole new personas for themselves is just deeply American. Um, and like I said, Gatsby, to me, is the, perhaps the most quintessential American story because of that, that this, you know, farm boy from North Dakota can become this, you know, fabulously wealthy, you know, you know, a social maven on Long Island during the jazz age, um, but at the same time can never quite leave behind, you know, who he was. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's a theme. It's like, you know, we want to reinvent ourselves completely and become blank slates, but can we really do that? Mm-hmm. Can you really sever all ties to, to, to the forces that shaped you and made you? It's an interesting question. I don't know. Some people go to tremendous extremes to do that. Um, to just kind of just eviscerate their former selves to become somebody else and perhaps live in fear of people discovering those things about them. So, you know, I just find those are deeply American questions to to explore through storytelling. And so I do want to talk a little bit about how you got to where you can even explore those because, you know, when you start out uh, in journalism, unless, I don't know, Maybe if you're some kind of like prodigy, you could be like, <laughs> I am going to show up and start writing about these <laughs> right. major themes that interest me. Um, but I don't actually, I, it's not a bullshit question. Like, I don't actually know. I know you worked at Legal Affairs, but right. um, I don't know how you got started. I do know, I will preface this by saying, I do know there was a time before I knew you personally that I and other people uh, tried to spread the rumor that there was more than one Brendan right. Cutter. <laughs> Or actually, you were employing other people to work for you because right. at this particular time, like early two thousands, late nineties, you had like five things going at once. Yeah. It seemed like in five different publications. But anyway, before that, how did you get to that point? Um, so you know, I, I went freelance around two thousand, and that's when I was doing tons of stuff for Slate and um, the Village Voice, and and you know, I was trying to make a living as a professional writer. You Where know? were you before you went freelance? So I was working at U.S. News World Report. When, oh, it exi- when it existed as a weekly news magazine. And I came in when, when the great James Fallows was the editor-in-chief. I, was, I, I got my first job in journalism there as a researcher. Oh, wow. I didn't, I didn't know him prior to that. Out of college? Straight out of college? Uh, pretty soon. Um, so my first, after college, I moved to Ireland and worked in a bar there and lazed around and kind of said I wanted to become a writer but didn't actually end up doing more drinking than writing. Far more drinking than writing. You became a Sunderland fan. I became a Sunderland fan. Worse than than alcoholism. It caused me years of frustration, yes. And uh, and I came back and 
you know, I got this job just as a, a researcher, fact checker at U.S. News, and it was just a great, it was a, a real fortunate thing because it was a great time to be there with James Fallows, um, who, of course, gone on to, to much bigger and better things since then. But he was trying to remake that and do something special at that time. Um, but, you know, I wanted to support myself as a writer when I went freelance, and so obviously that, that necessitates doing lots and lots and lots of work and, and learning how to write and and. I feel doing those 300, 500 word pieces in Slate and, and wherever I'll have you, you know, taught me the discipline of writing. But I always had my eye on doing something longer form, you know, mm-hmm. dating, you know, just stemming from my, lo- my love for the written word and for books and for storytelling. And that's what I wanted to do ultimately. Um, and so, I, you know, I found ways that, you know, my first book was actually grew out of a slate assignment um it was like a a, oh really yeah actually it it was kind of a random story where i was researching this explainer column about military executions and i had this bibliography and it was a little like 10 word footnote in the bibliography about this guy named herman perry and it said uh, something along the lines of herman perry long evaded capture by hiding with burmese hill tribe (laughs) and i was like that is some colonel kurtz stuff right there i gotta look into that um and so, you know, and, and I, I took that and I made that into my first book. And, um, you know, I've, I've known all along that I, I wanted to work my way up to do long-form pieces. That's, that's what I really want to do, um, books and, and, and big articles and, and storytelling. I want to be a storyteller. Um, so it was a process, you know, and developing the discipline through doing those shorter pieces was really key to develop the discipline to do the longer pieces, which can be, you know, a 6,000-word piece is not just 10 times harder than a 600-word piece. It's like 100 times harder. Yeah, but but the actually sitting down to write something every day, Yeah, you know, having had to do that. Yeah, that's, I mean, places. that's the biggest. I think for the book, you know, I mean, everyone works differently, and, and you know, you hear about the people that sit down, they're like, I'm going to write 5,000 words a day, and I'll edit later, whatever, it's, whatever it is, the Sinclair Lewis model, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for me, there's, I have to accept there's going to be days where I'm going to write 150 words and they're going to suck and I'm going to end up deleting them all and I'm not going to be happy at the end of that day. But if you're going to get that book done and you're going to you know, feed your kids, um, you've got to go to bed and get up the next day and, and write again and, and just pray that it's going to be that the, the gods are going to smile upon you a little bit more on that, that next day. <laughs> and, and often they do and often they do. Yeah, well, you also, I mean, you mentioned having kids and you, I mean, I end up talking to people about freelancing all the time. I was a freelancer for 10 or 12 years. And one of the things I often say is just like, yeah, it's because people say it's getting harder, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's in many ways true. But it's also you have to make certain sacrifices if you think you're going to be like a freelance magazine journalist, like it's a pain in the ass and yeah. the checks don't come and they don't come when you want them to and et cetera, et cetera. But you're one of the few people I know that's like, you you are in the process of and have been raising a family as a freelance writer. Yeah. It's pretty remarkable. But I mean, how does it feel from your end? Does it feel like chaos or uh, does it feel like you have a plan? I definitely don't have a plan. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's, I've been really fortunate and, um, it's been difficult. I think the biggest thing is thinking long term. You know, this is something I'm wrestling with right now. It's that it's very hard to think long term if you're, you know, the most you're aspiring to is a one year magazine contract um, <laughs> that doesn't include health insurance. And that's right. a great gig. I, I'm, I'm so fortunate um, to have those. It's amazing. But, you know, you, you can't, you got to think, well, in five years, you know, what if I want that next ma- when your contract and, and something happens and I fall behind on my on my requirements or they decide they want to cash me in for someone younger and better um, <laughs> cheaper and cheaper. <laughs> um, it, it's pretty nerve wracking. I, I got to be honest, it's nerve wracking. And, um, you know, I think that's one reason for me why I want to have my finger in a lot of pies yeah. and, and try to do a lot of different kind of writing. Um, you know, books, one thing. Uh, I've dabbled in screenwriting. Uh, I'd love to try that again. Um, you know, it, it's being a freelancer and really trying to make a go of it for the long term. You just can't have your, all your eggs in one basket because um, that basket will be torn out of your hands <laughs> on occasion. Or you have to anticipate at least that it could be um, if something goes awry. And then they take the eggs and they actually, like, chuck them, them, chuck them at your, your head. Yeah. Your <laughs> right. 
Um, yeah, it's it's definitely nerve wracking, but you know, it's um, it affords me a lot of opportunity. Um, you know, to carve out my schedule a little bit more and, you know, to be with my kids sometimes when if I had a traditional nine to five, I couldn't, which is really nice. Um, but yes, it also means a lot of weekends um, working. You know, it, one of the toughest things for the, the book is, you know, my, my son was getting to the age where he really wanted to play and go out and hang out with me. And I was, you know, daddy has to be in this hot room with the door locked <laughs> for eight hours today on a Saturday or Sunday or both. Um, and that's that, that's tough. That was tough on everyone. Yeah, Daddy's videotaping uh, pictures laid out on the floor. Yes. Please <laughs> it's, don't interrupt. I actually did that when the, my, my, my wife and son were out of town because I knew that my son might come racing through <laughs> and step on some really valuable, like, FBI interview from 1972. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you like writing about um, your last uh, – so your, both your books have a heavy historical component. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, we talked about how you would have liked to have one contemporary source who was not <laughs> available. Um, but the first one certainly – the events took place a long time ago yeah. during World War Two, right. and then the the whatever you call it mini book. We're mm-hmm. trying to come up with a better name for it that you did for right. us about <laughs> Teddy Weatherford took place even longer ago with yes. no one alive. Right, you know it was all based on documents. Do you like inhabiting those past worlds? Would you prefer not to? And you've just come across those stories. You know, I have mixed feelings about it. Um, I like to be engaged with the world. You know, I like one of the best parts of my job is sitting down, traveling somewhere in America I've never been before to interview someone I would never meet otherwise. And certainly, you know, for the Teddy Weatherford thing, for the Atavis, I didn't do that at all. Um, For the Now the Hell Will Start, I did do it a good bit, um, but it was relatives of people. There were definitely some, you know, I interviewed some senior citizens. Um, Mm -hmm. I certainly traveled around the country interviewing people in their 80s, but... You know, for this, I uh, for this book, I got to interview people younger with better better memories, and and I and I enjoy that. I mean, that's one of the great pleasures of, of what we do um, is understanding how people live, and, and you know, it's understanding how lives are lived and, and empathizing with people and learning to empathize with people very much unlike yourself. And I think in a lot of ways, it, it makes me a better person to do that. And it, it makes me more open to dealing with people. And I, so I think focusing too heavily on historical periods that are, are, are you know, too bygone and don't have living witnesses, mm-hmm. um, well, that can be great. And it's great to get lost in those worlds. And I certainly did for the Teddy Weatherford piece. Um, I think my heart is much more with the living than the dead. And what's what's your relationship to the to the reception on the book front of your of your work so and you know we can say i think safely like the current like the current book is being received very well Mm -hmm. it's i've read a lot of good reviews of it so far Mm -hmm. do you read that stuff do you do you internalize that stuff um yeah no that's a great question so you know i kind of made a promise to myself that i wouldn't read reviews but then i couldn't not do it (laughs) <laughs> and um, in was a lo- that based on the f- something that happened with the first book? I I wouldn't say I'm thin skin, but you know you you put yourself so much into something for four years, almost four years, and I was worried that I would read something really negative and that it would just put me in a funk. And I I wanted to be in a, I wanted my head to be in a good place for when the book came out. I wanted to be positive. Um, but, you know, reviews started coming out, and I realized that I learned a lot from reviews last time. Um, in fact, I learned a lot from reading reviews on Goodreads Yeah. about my first book. It, it's amazing because I would look at actually the negative reviews, not the really negative ones, but ones that are like two or three stars. And were like, well, it had potential, but here's what I think the problem was. And they had some good points. You know, they, people had good points. And <laughs> like, what, like what's an example? Do you give an example? I think the biggest one is, is people talking about... Um, there wasn't. There was too much of the history and not enough of the central narrative. Mm. Um, and looking back, that's probably a, that's probably right to some extent. Um, and I made conscious choices based on some of that feedback from people who didn't like it. You know, I wanted to find a way to satisfy them without stripping away what people who did like it enjoyed about it. Mm-hmm. So there's no question in my mind that you know reading reviews on Goodreads changed the way I approached the book. And do you expect the with the good ones, do you expect, you know, someone's got to come along and yeah. and sort of like try to burst whatever bubble they perceive is out there potentially? Yeah. I mean, obviously, um, you know, the thing I always think about um, is that, you know, there's two things. Well, one is that, you know, 
different strokes for different folks. Like some people think, you know, re, you know, Thomas Hart's Return of the Native is the best book ever written. And I think it's crap. <laughs> so, you know, it, it doesn't devalue uh, Thomas Hardy. <laughs> Um, and two, you know, I just think about this moment. It's actually something my son said. It's um, I was picking up my son from from preschool, and I actually had my I have a, a baby daughter, and she was strapped to my chest. And my Google alert rang on my phone. It was this this big review um, in the New York Times? And I was like, I can't read this. I'm terrified. I'm just going to say something awful about about the book or about me as a writer. And my son said to me, he's like, um, and he's five, I should say. Uh, if it's bad, you won't die. <laughs> oh and, you know, that's a good point, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I always think about that when I, when, you know, when I, when I when I pick up a new review and, and taking that risk of, of someone slamming something you've done that you, that you genuinely poured your heart and soul into, you know, you'll live to fight another day. <laughs> wow. That's, that's some wisdom from the little man. Yeah. He, he's, he's wise beyond his years. <laughs> Uh, you know, he still picks his nose, but <laughs> one step at a time. <laughs> well, that is, I can't think of a better place to stop an interview than on that. Some wisdom from young Maceo. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. Oh, thank you for, for having me, in. man. That was really yeah. fun. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff of Atavist. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer of Longform. You can find them at longform.org. You can find Atavist at atavist.com. Thanks to our fantastic editor, Lauren Kirchner, and to our intern, Chelsea Edgar. And thanks to Brendan Kerner for coming on the show today and talking about his book, among other things. The book is called The Skies Belong to Us. You should check it out. It's amazing. And we'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.